Father, again, we just stand before you, sit before you, come before you, and want to experience you. We want, we want you to speak to our hearts. We want you to speak to our inmost beings. Um, transform us, change us, let us come um, in here one way and leave a different way. And not the way we walk, but the, what we think about, how, we're, how our hearts are oriented to the world around us, how we think of ourselves, restore us. Um, Father, I, I know there's so many people here that have experienced hurt and betrayal in their lives, and they need to have you restore them. We, we need to know that, you, um, that you're with us. So speak to us. Inspire us. Have your way with us as we surrender to you. Amen. I feel really awkward asking this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, <laughs> and then I'm going to have an awkward pause. <laughs> and then I'm going to ask the question. It's not that bad. <clears throat> and you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want. How many of you have been closely touched by divorce? And by closely, I mean like yourself or a parent, maybe a family member. So probably fairly well represented, 50-ish percent or so. So... <clears throat> It's, it's something that is difficult. It's something that is experienced by a large percentage of Americans in particular. Uh, the numbers are really staggering when we look at the divorce rate. Um, it's around 50% of first marriages end in divorce. And it's, it's, it's not easy, right? Nobody gets married thinking, yeah, well, it's probably going to end in a couple of months or weeks or a couple of years down the road or... I just heard recently of a friend that's been married for 33 years and is now going through divorce. It's just difficult. It is really hard. Jesus talks about why divorce happens, and he said it's because our, our hearts are hard. Of course, it feels kind of difficult sometimes because maybe, it's, maybe some of you are coming from this perspective as well, but it wasn't your choice. It wasn't your decision to be divorced. Or the ramifications of something that happened were just so so radically difficult that it left scars in your ability to trust a person. So anyway, Jesus knows and understands how, how hard relationships are and how difficult our lives can be and how hard, honestly, our hearts can be and how it leads to many times difficult, struggling circumstances. As a matter of fact, a once upon a time, and this once upon a time was thousands of years ago. Imagine that divorce has been around a long time, right? There, was a, there, were, there were a bunch of men, and in this historical context, um, women didn't have rights. They couldn't divorce their, their husbands. Only husbands could divorce their wives. And this was something that was becoming just an epidemic problem. Men, right and left, were just abandoning their wives, kicking them to the curb, sending, saying, goodbye, sorry, sayonara, see you later. don't think I like you anymore, so you can go away. And unfortunately, in this historical context, and some of you know what I'm talking about, probably um, women were considered property. They were owned by their husbands. And as a woman was sent on her way by her husband who didn't want her anymore, they really had no options in life at that point. Because you were known to have been married to somebody and their property, and so... If you wanted to survive, you basically had the option of becoming a prostitute because people that could potentially marry you didn't know whether or not you were owned by somebody. 
I know that that all sounds kind of barbaric in a sense, right? A lot of things are sounding probably a little barbaric about that. But but this prophet came along who was leading this group of people. And you guys know who I'm talking about, right? Moses. And Moses said, okay, husbands, if you're going to put your wives away like that, if you're just going to kick them to the curb because you found something unpleasant in them, at least give them a stinking certificate of divorce so that they know that you are no longer in possession of them. You don't own them anymore. So now they can actually do something other than be a prostitute. So that they can be married to somebody else. So they could come into somebody else's household because a woman that had been known to be married and was sent away, a man didn't know whether or not he was going to be accused of stealing, right? But if they had that certificate of divorce that they were sent away with, it would be their right to be married again. I was married. My husband got rid of me. Now I can be married again. It offered opportunity to women of something other than becoming a prostitute. Jesus addresses this opportunity or this challenge, I guess, that Moses gives to the Israelite men. He says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting that from Deuteronomy 24.1. And even though it's a little bit difficult to understand when you're reading it in Deuteronomy 24 exactly what's going on, as you go to rabbis within the historical context that are writing on this, they're talking about Moses actually defending women. He's not just letting men divorce their wives. He's not trying to encourage it. He's offering some guidelines to it, some stipulations to it, so that women weren't just being victimized. So he quotes what Moses says, and then he goes on. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 24.1. And I just want to read that for you real quick. This is from the message. If a man marries a woman and then it happens that he no longer likes her because he, was found, he has found something wrong with her, he may give her divorce papers, put them in her hand, and send her off. And again, the idea is that he wants to, Moses wants to offer the stipulation so that the woman has this divorce paper in her hand so that when she's sent off without a place to live or anywhere to go, she has some options to say, hey, will you take me into your household because my husband, who's no longer my husband, has set me free and I need some place to go. And he could say, well, show me your paperwork <laughs> and take her into his household. Moses is really, as barbaric as it still sounds, again, protecting. He's protecting women. He's noticing how horrific this situation is. And he's trying to make sure that the woman has an opportunity to offer something, to to find something better for her life, to still move in a positive direction in some sense, as if it's not bad enough just to be kicked out the door. I can't imagine what that would be like. Like we talk about divorce and how devastating it is for people today. But imagine being in that context and being a woman and being sent away 
with nothing except for a piece of paper in your hand that says you're free and clear to marry again. I can't even begin to imagine how unsettling that would be. Maybe some of you, in a sense, can. Those kind of things happen in our culture. Obviously, divorce happens. But there are situations where men and or women are sent off from their households with nothing, kicked out of the household, have everything taken from them. It happens. So so this command that Moses offered up to give a woman a certificate of divorce later became something that was highly disputed, particularly in Jesus' day, and it's still in some sense disputed in some Hebrew contexts. People were dis- trying, trying to look at this command that Jesus offered, that Moses offered up. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And they were trying to figure out, as it related in, Ma- in, in, in Deuteronomy 24.1, what the Hebrew word ervah referred to. That's the detestable thing. The, as we read it here, something wrong with her. Like, they were reading the law in such a way that said, okay, if I'm going to divorce my wife, she has to do something that qualifies for that erwa. What is it that requires, what, what, what does she have to do for me to justifiably divorce her? What is the detestable thing, the shameful thing, the indecent thing, the unbecoming thing? Two primary houses of thought on this that, that, that kind of define the polar ends, the bookends of where people were coming from and how to interpret what a detestable thing, what would qualify as this detestable thing that allows me to give my wife a certificate of divorce. The house of Shammai held that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression. That erhua, this detestable thing, has to be really bad. It has to be some typical form of unfaithfulness, something usually having to do with infidelity, something to do with sexuality. And then the house of Hillel offered that a man could divorce his wife for just about anything, that it was justifiable according to Deuteronomy 24 to put your wife away because she burned a meal. Seriously. They, that's urfwa, something that you didn't like about what they did. Or they just got old and wrinkly, right? They nursed too many kids and, you know. I heard a great joke. Oh, you can't, get, you can't embarrass me with that. You weren't here a couple of, a couple of uh, Mother's Days ago when I had this whole poetic thing that I did about sagging bosoms. But anyway... <laughs> We shouldn't be embarrassed about it. It should be something we think of as beautiful, to be quite honest with you. Not really, right? We should. I don't remember. <laughs> but I did hear a funny joke about that the other day, but I won't tell it in this company. But you can ask me later. <laughs> the House of Hillel, though, the school of interpreting the Old Testament. Hillel was a teacher. He really did teach that if your wife got old, she wasn't pleasing to your eye anymore. If she 
burn the toast. If she was too late to get out to the car every time you were trying to get to a baseball game. (laughs) (laughs) Or if your husband embarrasses you in front of everybody. (laughs) I love you, honey. I I know, you were. It was awesome. Anyway, just if you... (laughs) Does anybody else struggle with stuff like that? Anyway, um, if... (laughs) If, uh, if you just found something, you just, you just got to wait around and find something, and, and you're good. You can go ahead, give her a certificate of divorce, fulfill all righteousness in that way, and send her down the road. Let the new model come in, right? Golly, that's crazy. And so, of course, some people will say, like, well, golly, I mean, hey, school of Shammai must have it right. Then it has to be at least something really detestable, something really horrible that she's done order to send her off. That sounds a little bit better. And I think, though, that Je- I think Jesus says, uh-uh, to, to both of them. I think he says, no way to both of them. And let me go on for a second. I think in both of these cases, people's concern for even applying Moses' teaching was to answer a question like, obviously, maybe, what is justifiable grounds for divorce? Or, or better yet, what does my wife have to do in order for me to divorce her and still fulfill the expectations of the law? What qualifies is detestable enough that I am free and clear when it comes to my obligation to her? What, what does she have to do that lets me send her down the way with a paper in her hand and still have God say, Oh, yeah, you're good. That's why they, that's their whole orientation to that. That's what they were trying to figure out. Both those schools are wrong, according to Jesus. Jesus' idea concerning the law's intention and what fulfills the law's intention is entirely different. He has a whole different orientation to the law. He's not so concerned with the actions of a wife that would justify a husband sending her away. He's concerned for God's original intention for marriage. And he's concerned for justice for the powerless. He's concerned for women that have in his context, and men that can have the same thing happen in ours, for having violence done to them. Just like in Moses' situation, in Jesus' historical context, Women didn't have any rights. They couldn't divorce. They couldn't remarry without that certificate in hand for the fear that they would be, whoever household, whoever's household they would go into, they would be considered stealing. So they were left stuck. They were left victimized. They were left having to figure out what in the world they were going to do with their lives. And Jesus is saying to us that if our orientation to the law is simply trying to watch out for ourselves, making sure we're good with God and what has to justify some broken action, our orientation is entirely wrong. Let me read the text for you again real quick. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, 
makes her the victim of sexual immorality. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus flat out says, anyone who divorces his wife makes her the victim of adultery. Jesus is talking about the actions of a man regardless of the reason as doing harm to somebody else. And of course, some people will say right about this point, wait, 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 wait a second. He makes an exception. Makes an exception to, uh, except for sexual immorality. Right? So as long as, as long as, as long as she's doing something really detestable, like, like Shammai said, and then, then we're good. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying something like, if Corey has a glass of water and she's thirsty, and I take her glass of water and I dump it out, I'm making her a victim of thirst. But if she takes a glass of water herself and dumps it out, she's making herself a victim of thirst. Jesus is saying that a woman who has been left for the reasons of adultery has already made herself an adulteress. She's not being made one by her husband. But he doesn't say that that makes it all good and fine to go ahead and send her away. Actually, Jesus' teaching on divorce is extremely difficult. Matter of fact, when he teaches on divorce in Matthew 19.9, of which I would love to have dovetailed into this message, his disciples say, oh my goodness, it's just better not to get married. <laughs> and basically Jesus says, yeah, but not everybody can handle that. <laughs> Jesus is holding up a standard of expectation for marriage that has to do with his father's intentions for marriage when he first instituted marriage when he first made man and woman and called them to replant, or to fill the earth. He made a man and a woman to be married and to be together and to be together forever like penguins. <laughs> they, they made for life. Okay, good. All right. And that when something comes between that, brokenness comes out of it. He isn't pretending as if it's not going to happen. He just really wants us to think extremely seriously about what does happen. He wants us to recognize that our actions have consequences in the lives of other people. He wants men to recognize that they can't stand behind this seeming loophole in the law of Moses and be like, well, you know, I think that the detestable thing is, is burning the toast and sending her off and be like, I'm good. Jesus is saying, you might think you're good, but what about this woman that you were married to, that you have vowed to love, that you sent off, and now where is she at? She's in brokenness. She's in betrayal. She's in loss. She's in heartache. She's going to be scorned by her community oftentimes in that culture. You know the woman at the well? Married five times. You know, a woman in Hebrew culture, if she's married five times, go into a man's house, she doesn't even need to be committed. He doesn't have to commit to her at all. 
There's no marriage required at that point. You ever stop and think about the fact that that woman is at the well in the middle of the day, at the hottest time of the day, because she's an outcast of her community. Jesus is trying to help us reorient ourselves to the lost. He's trying to help us discover, he's trying to help people see that the law isn't something to stand behind to justify bad activity, bad actions that have consequences in other people's lives and to say, nope, I'm fine, no big deal. Regardless of what the situation is, regardless of the infidelity, regardless of how bad the meal was, regardless of how low the bosom sagged, The commitment is the commitment. God established it. There ain't any loopholes. Again, he recognizes that people's hearts are hard, right? And that it's difficult. It's a struggle. He doesn't say it ain't going to happen. He just doesn't, he wants us to understand how it's supposed to be. And how if you've been through it in your life, you know how unright it is to go through that kind of hurt. And betrayal. So, as is translated in the NIV 2011 that I have here, anyone who divorces his wife makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who divorces, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I do not have time to go into all of this. You have to show up for a Bible study at some point to talk about. Uh, seriously, like I think Bible study, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and we were hours in conversation. Oh, absolutely. It does, right? It's different today. It's different because there are women that kick their men to the curb, right? Because they're, because, right, because their bosoms are sagging, right? Because they have to have a man's ear now, right? Because the six-pack has turned into a keg. <laughs> it, it does. It goes both ways. I'm glad you said that. It absolutely, it absolutely, the situation has changed as far as legal rights, and it goes both ways. It doesn't, doesn't matter which, which direction it comes from. Sorry, I'm way off my notes, so i got to catch up. <clears throat> I know, we're going back to the start. The reality is that our actions can do harm to others, right? Like, that's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> when we're not thinking about our actions, they can easily do harm to others. We, we can hurt each other. And the people that we've committed ourselves to the most are the ones that we can hurt the most and the ones we can be hurt by the most. And it's devastating. Even sometimes our religious actions or our seemingly justifiable actions within a church teaching can harm others. Has anyone here ever been hurt by religious actions by somebody? Right? We probably all have. Golly, I hear story after story after story that makes me want to pull my hair out. About Not, not in a bad way. Well, can you hold, pull your hair out in a good way? Stuart, can you do it? <laughs> Todd's not here. I can't make fun of can't make fun of Scissors, yes, you're right. That's not too painful. But that's what was going on within people in Jesus' days' orientation to the law, the people that he's talking to. Their religion was hurting people. 
Because again, they're reading Moses' command to give a wife a certificate of, of divorce as justification for divorcing their wives so long as the offense was bad enough. They were religiously finding something in the law that made it okay. It was happening a lot in Jesus' day and it happens a lot in our day. People being hurt by religious thoughts and activities. I'm reminded of Jesus speaking with the Pharisees on one occasion. Actually, they come to Him. Pharisees and the religion scholars came to Jesus all the way from Jerusalem, criticizing His disciples. Why do, you, why do your disciples play fast and loose with the rules? Like they're not washing their hands. They're not living up to certain expectations that they had of what the law was all about. And Jesus replies to them. He put it right back on them, it says. Why do you use your rules to play fast and loose with God's commands? Why do you do it? God clearly says, respect your father and mother, and anyone who denounces father or mother should be killed. But you weasel around that by saying, whoever wants whoever wants to can say to father and mother, What I owe to you, I've given to God. That can hardly be called respecting a parent. You cancel God's commands by your rules. They were finding loopholes all over the place that justified whatever actions they wanted to live out. What they were doing was taking what was supposed to go to their parents to take care of them and offering it in the temple so that the bells and whistles and trumpets would go off and everybody would say, oh my goodness, look at that guy, look at that gal. They're giving all this money to the church or to the temple. (laughs) They weren't taking care of their family. They were victimizing their parents for the sake of fulfilling the law in the way they thought it should be fulfilled, failing to recognize that they were supposed to be loving their parents. We can't do that. We can't use the Word of God. We can't use the Scriptures to justify doing harm to others. Or if we do, we nullify the law, right? Jesus says that it's summed up by loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. We can't do violence. We can't do harm to people. We can't fail to care for people. If our orientation to the Scriptures is centered on what do I have to do to be righteous, which sounds like a good question, but if it's on that and not on what do the Scriptures teach me about how to love my neighbor, things go sideways quickly. If our concern with God's commands are simply a concern for self, there's a problem. That's when we begin to look for loopholes. Because we don't really care that much about loving people. We just are concerned about what we have to do to not go to hell. Right? But if we come to the foundational understanding that the entirety of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Law and Prophets, is about how to love God and love one another, then we can begin to look past ourselves and to those who are impacted by our actions, whether they're good actions or bad actions. 
You know, Jesus is asked a lot this question about, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think he likes the question. Because it's actually an orientation to the question that's, okay, so what do I have to do to not go to hell? Or whatever, right? Like, there's no concern over somebody showing up and saying, okay, Jesus, um, I'm really trying hard. I got this friend that's really a pain in the rump, and I'm trying to love him, but I can't seem to, it's really hard because he's driving me crazy. But I know I'm supposed to love him, so can you just help me figure out how to love him? Jesus likes those questions. You don't hear those questions very much. You usually hear the single orientation, what do I have to do for my self-preservation question. And when Jesus answers that question, he answers it in the way that is answering the, well, why don't we talk about what it looks like to love your neighbor? For example, Just then a religion scholar stood up. This is from Luke chapter 10. You'll recognize it, I think. Just then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Here's a question. He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? I mean, it's like, dude, you're a scholar. You tell me. He said, this religion scholar, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence and that you love your neighbor as yourself. So he knew the right answer. Bingo. Awesome. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, just how, do you, how would you define your neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. Oh, come on, Jesus. Story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, they beat him up, and they went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across the other side. Then a Levite, a religious man, showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling down the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll come back on my way back. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly. <laughs> the religion scholar responded. You see, what the guy was trying to do was find that loophole. Right? How can I be righteous before God and fulfill what I know I'm supposed to do but not have to really give that big of a rip about people that I don't like? He's looking for a loophole. He's trying to find a way to be righteous. He's trying to find a way to inherit eternal life, and he knows the way. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Do that, you'll live. Everything's going to be great. But he doesn't want to. He wants to find a loophole. He wants to find a way to victimize somebody, to be quite honest with you, by not offering them the love that he's supposed to. 
And they had strategies for working this out, too. In Jesus' day, the religion scholars and the Pharisees, they had ways to figure out who exactly would qualify as a neighbor. I mean, they knew the law was there, right? But, you know, they would somehow find a way to whittle it down to, like, well, other people just like me. I mean, because if somebody is, like, a lawbreaker, you, you, you don't have to love them. They're not neighbor, right? If somebody lives too far away from you or they're a Samaritan, <laughs> you don't have to love them. You know, if, if somebody's too old, you don't have to love them. I mean, if I might have to get my hands dirty in loving somebody else, then I don't really have to love them because that would make me unclean. And, like, if it costs me too much of my time and energy and effort, it can't really be my neighbor because I don't hang with people that are that destitute. And besides, I mean, if they're that bad off, God must have afflicted them, cursed them, and doesn't like them. So I don't have to either. And Jesus does here a really peculiar thing. He flips it all the way around. At the end, I've talked about this before. It's talked about it a lot because it's one of my favorite things that Jesus does. A religion scholar asks, who's my neighbor? And Jesus asks, who's being a neighbor? Right? You're supposed to be a neighbor, not just be nice to people that you can qualify as your neighbor. Something that we're supposed to do. And it's something that is something we are supposed to do with anybody that we come across that has a need. And that's really hard. That is really, really hard. And I think Jesus loves it when we let him know it. When we, when we tell him how hard it is to sometimes love people that we don't feel like loving, but we know we are supposed to. He's with us in that. When we simply want not to figure out what we have to do or what loopholes we can find to exclude people and still be good with God, but instead come to Him asking to be filled with the capacity to love folks that are really hard to love, to reconcile with folks you don't want to reconcile with, to work out things that you don't want to work out with people. It seems to me, and I stand here as a man who has been is divorced and remarried to this absolutely fabulous woman. It seems to me that there isn't anything that God can't overcome when we surrender things to Him. But both people have to be willing to do it. Both people have to. And I know it's tough. It's hard. It's not easy. But God wants us to not look for loopholes. He wants us to try and reconcile with people. He wants us to find reasons to continue to forge ahead. He knows that it's going to take forgiveness, and He knows it's going to take hard work. If we were willing to do that more, I think we would see God's power in our lives more. And it's, again, not just a matter of divorce. It's a matter of everything we go through in our lives. Hmm. So, So what about what about this in light of Jesus resurrection? What about 
working things out and continuing to struggle to move forward even in desperate situations. What about that in light of Jesus' resurrection? What about that? Death? No. If if God can overcome Jesus' death, if he can overcome that, he can can overcome the struggles in our lives. can. Whatever they might be. In light of the resurrection, yeah, I just said, say it, go ahead. So I don't, I want to clarify, making sure that I'm clear on a couple of things. I believe that it's brokenness, but the reality is that marriages are going to fail sometimes. I think if both people really want to make it work, it works. And it's never easy even when both people want to make it work, right? It's not easy. The reality is that people's hearts are hard. And marriages will fail. And God is very gracious with us. But he doesn't want us to stand behind some loophole in the law and say, well, it's entirely justifiable of what I did because, look, at there's this loophole back here. And when Jesus is constantly saying, but that's not the way it was supposed to be. Which leaves us in the position of relying solely on God's grace. Solely on God's grace. I strongly believe the only reason Kat and I can be married is because God is gracious faithful. Let's let's us start again. Let's us try again. He's the kind of God who is gracious to let us breathe again even when we've used the breath in our lungs to curse Him. But still gives us the grace to breathe another breath of air. He gives us second chances. He wants us, though, to recognize how costly that grace is and how hurtful our actions can be when we are simply centered on ourselves. And that it can be devastating in the lives of other people when we don't take those things and our actions into serious consideration before we act. So I hope I'm being clear on that. I know that there are people in this room that are divorced and remarried, and people that are divorced, and people that are separated, and people that are divorced and getting remarried soon, and all kinds of stuff. It's the kind of brokenness that God does involve himself in. He doesn't run off from us. He just wants us to know that it shouldn't be just simple and easy and no big deal. Because again, as those of you who have been through broken marriages know, it is not easy. It's not easy at all to be betrayed like that. Do you guys have any questions? Yes, those are kids. Please, everyone, wash your hands. Oh, please wash your hands. You don't have to do it for any religious purposes, but hand washing is good. Or sanitizer or whatever. You're silly. You're funny. All right. Any, any other questions? Chase. 
I will be your neighbor. I am your neighbor, and you're mine. Yeah. <laughs> we, we being in here, Jason's neighbor. Anyway, literally, big, uh, geographically speaking. All right. If you have any questions, please come. feel free to ask me after the service, um, or call me or text me. Um, I'd be more than happy to talk more on, on this topic. So it's one that definitely touches close to home for me. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're gracious with us. Thank you that you love us. But thank you at the same time you show us why that grace is so needed because when we just blow the things that we are supposed to do in loving one another, it hurts people. It victimizes people. And you don't want that. That's not what you desire. And so when you shower us with your grace, help us to remember why we need it and that we need it. And not to just simply take advantage of it as some license to do whatever we want, but knowing that you're the God through that grace of second chances, the one who inspires us, who heals us, and gives us hope. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see that uh, our actions make a difference in people's lives for good or for bad. And that though we do stand before you as a forgiven people, our actions still hurt people and can still offer hope to people. Let us be about offering hope to people and not hurting people. Father, shower us with your love. Fill us with your spirit and just change us to be thoughtful, mindful people that aren't looking for loopholes, but looking for ways to love people. We love you so much, Jesus. Thank you that you come and just straighten things out for us praise you for your mercy, your goodness, and your faithfulness. We love you. Amen.